Hello and welcome back to the Pursuit Podcast. This week we're talking to the professional runner and mental health advocate Ali Ostrander. This episode takes a deep dive into all sorts of topics, from Ali's journey with an eating disorder and how sharing her story has helped, how applying abstract philosophy can help your training, Ali's thoughts on balancing performance and social media, why 28 kilometers is not a short race, what killing journey is really like, and are all athletes influences when you look at it from first principles. We have some great guests coming onto the show, so make sure to subscribe and then you don't miss an episode. Enjoy the show. Ali Ostrander, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm excited. It's finally happening. Finally happening. It's funny, actually. The first time we went to record, I was out with a local wrong group and we were supposed to record. It was like in the 7 p.m. in the evening of our time. And uh, when we were out, we just had a big storm before and all of the trees fell across the path. So we had like a kilometer of like ducking and diving over trees and we had no (laughs) phone signal. So I couldn't get in touch. That was like a month ago and we're finally here. So (laughs) then after that, we, I was like, oh, I'll just stay in the like recording studio until he's ready. And then you were in it too. And we somehow just didn't like... I was over- sat there for like half an hour after. And then yeah. I think you must have been as well. And we were both messaging each other, been like, I'm here. Are you here? And you're like, I'm here. Are you here? <laughs> <laughs> it was like a comedy of errors, honestly. But yeah, <laughs> here we are. It's happening. <laughs> oh, so good. So you are originally from Alaska. That just sounds very cold to someone who's never been or really read much about Alaska. Could you sort of just describe even how someone goes about doing any sport in the winter, let alone run in the winter? (laughs) Yeah, so, well, when I was younger, um, like in middle school, high school, that sort of age, I didn't really run in the winter. I always played basketball. So, yeah, that's how you're indoors. I got a little more serious about running. I would run like a couple days a week during the winter, just on the treadmill and sometimes outside if it was warmer. But now when I go home in the winter, it's definitely a little bit more of an effort because, you know, I'll, I'll have to wear like ice cleats to go running. You have to bring a lot of layers and stuff like that. But I think that it's basically, it's almost always possible to run outside as long as you have the proper clothing and you have ice cleats to add to your shoes, the only time that it gets like too difficult is if it's freshly fallen snow and it hasn't been cleared at all. And then you're just like post holing the whole run, basically, which then is when you run on the treadmill. Also, if you're trying to do like a fast, high intensity workout and it's really icy, the ice cleats don't quite cut it. So you kind of need. To move that as well but yeah I mean you can almost always make it work okay this is gonna sound really ignorant but like how cold does it even get like are you spending hours in the morning just like clearing your car for snow and ice just to like, get about? <laughs> not hours but it's definitely a daily activity in high school my sister always drove me to school because she was older and like the cost of my ride was I had to clean the car off every <laughs> so tough because I would just be out there like scraping the car getting all the ice off the snow off and then she'd just stroll outside and hop in our was also like 
old enough where it took about 10 minutes to heat up. So we'd just be like shivering in the car and the drive to school was 12 minutes. So like the last two minutes, we would finally get warm and then we just have to get back out. Yeah, as someone who has three older sisters, that, that sounds somewhat familiar. <laughs> yeah. You said you resisted becoming a runner and always wanted to do a sport which involved like a ball, so like basketball or something. Why, why was that? Is running not cool enough? I mean, now I think running is very cool, you know, but when I was younger, I mean, I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but I feel like it's pretty common that running isn't like your first love. It's kind of, it comes like second or third. um, And you just kind of slowly realize like that is the way you're going to go. But yeah, when I was younger, I was obsessed, obsessed with soccer. Like I read books about soccer. I read soccer players autobiographies. I studied the national team and like memorized all their names and numbers and stats and like I I watched soccer and then obviously I played a ton. I I absolutely loved soccer. Like in the winter when I couldn't go outside, I would dribble around my room in circles. I would practice my footwork. <laughs> I was really obsessed with soccer and I thought that that would be what I pursued in college, like all the way up until probably sophomore year of high school. And then at that point my my competitive soccer team, I'm from a pretty small town and we we were always like on the verge of not having enough players. And basically at that point, we didn't have enough players anymore to have a team. So I was like, well, I guess I'll run this summer because I can't play soccer. And then that's, that's kind of when I decided that I wanted to run. That's quite funny, actually. Because then you obviously went off to college and we had a guy called Mike Foppen on the podcast and he's a 5,000 meter Olympian from the Netherlands. And he was just explaining like athletics in the US, especially like the college scene is completely wild compared to Europe. So as someone who has obviously had no experience in the US with college, how does a sort of athletic scene scholarship work? Yeah, I mean, I think that the US probably has like the best system for high school athletes to go on to college. And like the NCAA system is incredible as far as providing racing opportunities and like all the training and facilities that you need. So I went to Boise State, uh, which I was really excited about because I wanted to get out of Alaska. But Boise was a really cool town with a lot of like trails and it still had a winter and but it had like a really nice summer. And also it had spring, which was like a beautiful time of year where like all the flowers came into bloom and it was like a nice 70 degrees and sunny. I had never experienced spring before (laughs) and where like all the snow melts and the dog shit that got frozen and it thaws and everything smells bad and like it's disgusting outside and just slush. I thought that's what spring was, but spring (laughs) beautiful. And oh, the first time I experienced it, I was like, does this happen every year? Like, is this like, anyways, that's unrelated to college athletics, but the NCAA system is basically like for a runner though, you're in season the entire school year, which is kind of unique. Uh, I think on the professional scene, usually people take like one of those seasons and not race or, and then one of them even too is like a little bit taken out of focus a little bit they choose one to focus on one to like tune up during and one to take off but if you're in college you kind of focus on all of them and I think that's truly one of the only downsides of the actual system I mean other than like 
it's a compressed timeline. You only have four years. So I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure put on athletes to like really peak during those four years when in reality, most people would peak later in their 20s or even in their early 30s. But yeah, it's crazy. Like you have athletic trainers on tap. You've got a whole gym. You've usually got like a whole track. You have an entire coaching staff, all your travels paid for and organized. There are all these racing opportunities. You don't really have to worry about getting into races. They're just there for you. There's like super cool championship seasons every single season. So yeah, like I think that Honestly, while I was in the NCAA, I didn't quite appreciate all of that enough because not only do you have all of these resources, but they're also like within a half mile radius. So like you can just jet from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And like super nice when you go on trips, all you have to do is show up and get on the van and then like everything's taken care of. So it's definitely like super, super nice. And it makes competing like competing in college athletics, super easy um, as far as a logistics standpoint goes. So yeah, like super cool. I think one of the things I was the most shocked about once I was a pro was like, oh my gosh, I spend so much time driving to practice and then driving there <laughs> and then driving to the gym. Like I am spending an hour a day driving between places when I used to have like a three minute walk, you know? What's the end to having such a well-supported college athletics is it so that the college can have the best athletes and therefore have the win at the championships etc or is it more of a wider structure for the an eye to the olympics i think it's just so the college can have like the best performance in athletics so depending on the school like obviously the facilities will be really different but basically football and basketball are the big money sports that bring in the most revenue for the university And so if you have those two sports at your school, then you'll probably have really nice facilities because they're really not for you. They're really for those two teams, but you get to use them so you benefit from it. And yeah, I I think that's it. I guess that like athletics drive enrollment. I don't understand like the entire behind the scenes of why they want to have these athletic teams. But uh, yeah, it's for like improving enrollment and university visibility and stuff like that. And is there any talk or emphasis at all on trail at college or is it purely on the track and cross country? In fact, you even do cross country. Yeah, you do cross country in the fall and then track in the spring and uh, in the winter, spring and then early summer. But there's no emphasis on trails. I mean, personally, at Boise State, a lot of our running was on like foothills trails because those were really close to our track and like great to run on. But yeah, cross country would be the closest thing. So definitely nothing like mountainous. From being a college athlete to then being a full-time pro, has your training developed or changed at all? Um, I think at first it didn't change that much. Like at the pro level, I did notice a few changes. I mean, from my college training, but I think like it would just vary between programs like maybe if I had been at Oregon then it would have been exactly the same you know I think that's more of like a coaching change necessarily than like an actual like pro to college change but then like I went through a pretty long (laughs) injury cycle and then after that my training changed quite a bit because I was like I kind of have to adapt and change and like try to get out of this injury cycle so since then, I've been like lower mileage and more cross training. 
And that's also kind of around the time where I was like, well, maybe I'll try trails because I think that just spending too much time on the track and doing like this really super high intensity training on like flat and pavement and stuff is kind of causing some of the injury problems. And so I thought that doing trail at least part of the year or having some of my training and racing on trails would help me avoid those injuries. So then now, what would a typical week of training look like? Obviously, it's the winter, so you're sort of building up. But given mm-hmm. any given week, sort of in a preparation stage, what sort of balance of intervals and long runs are you doing? Right now, it would be Mondays are kind of my reset day. So sometimes it'll be completely off or sometimes it'll just be like an easy cross-train day. And then Tuesdays are a run with hill strides and then a cross-training double and Wednesdays are kind of the meatiest workout of the week, the hardest kind of higher intensity thing, and then a lift and a cross-train double. And then Thursdays are a double day, but they're both cross-training. And then Fridays are run with hill strides, cross-train double. Saturday would be usually like some sort of a long run workout. And then Sundays longer cross train plus a double you're quite open on social media about everything that goes on but i think one of the best things is like you're hilariously funny on social media you have all these like different shorts about everything when do you like sort of come up with them is it when you're out training and you're like oh this will make a really funny video yeah sometimes it's like when i'm running but a lot of the time it's when i'm cross training because i get so ridiculously bored like i have to So that's when I come up with most of my ideas is just when I'm like on the bike, like, please, anything to distract me from like what I'm actually doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) We had um, a European Nike trail runner in it. He's called Francesco Poopy. He was saying that he really admires, say, for example, you, because you're really open on social media about the mental health and, you know, that all the history that's involved with that. What was the process behind deciding to post that for the world to see? Yeah, so I think that the biggest thing for me was, like, I have a YouTube channel, I share my life there, I share everything, I mean, not everything, but like, I share a lot about myself. And it's, I think it's really fun. I enjoy connecting with people through that platform. And I enjoy connecting with people. To me, YouTube is a little bit more personal. Like, I feel like my YouTube subscribers are like my friends, they know a lot about me. And, you know, we talk, but uh, (laughs) um, so a big thing for me was that, like, I felt like I couldn't make videos that I felt good about because I wasn't being open with what was truly going on in my life. And especially when I went to a treatment center, it was like, that was, that was almost my entire day, every day. And I was like, I can't share any of this. Like, obviously I couldn't really... I couldn't like vlog while I was there anyways, like that was illegal, but like I couldn't talk about it. And that caused me a lot of cognitive dissonance because it just felt wrong to be like, yeah, look at this workout. When in reality, I was like, really, my mind was in shambles during the workout because I was like, I just did like this 10 hour block of just like ripping my brain apart. And so that was basically why I was like, I have to share about this because I just can't Either I have to share or I have to go dark on social media because I can't be telling half-truths online or just brushing all this to the side. And so I just decided to be open about it because 
I felt really alone during the process, and I thought maybe if I shared about it, other people going through similar things wouldn't feel so alone. And also, I would feel more authentic in myself, and it would also help me, it would add a level of accountability, because one one thing about eating disorders is that they really thrive in silence, because it's to hide what you're doing um, for people that don't understand or haven't been through something similar you can really really hide things well and that's why they're so dangerous because they can go on for so long without ever being noticed um but I knew that if I was really open about what I was going through I wouldn't be able to hide anymore and that was really scary to me as well but I knew that it was the the best thing to do and did it all stem from the absolute pursuit of performance the eating disorder or was there extra elements to it yeah, it definitely all stemmed from performance. I mean, it started at a really young age when I basically was, I didn't really understand that there were any drawbacks. And it wasn't like in my head, I thought I'm going to have an eating disorder in my head. It was like, I'm just going to stay really lean forever um, and really small forever. And I didn't realize that there were dangers to doing that or that like not properly developing could actually jeopardize my future success. And then it went on for so long that I think it kind of intertwined itself with my personality and my sense of self because it had been who I was for pretty much all of my developmental years. And so I think while it started as completely rooted in performance, it actually did get to be something bigger. And that was one of the hard things when I was trying to recover was, I mean, I'm really scared that my performance will suffer, but I'm also scared because I don't know who I am without this. Obviously, we don't need to go into it if you didn't want to, but what's the treatment side of recovering from something like that? Do they treat it like just psychological thing or is there like a physical element to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a multifaceted illness. So they treat it, they usually try to treat it from three perspectives. So there's the psychological component, there's the emotional component, and then there's the physical component as well. And so obviously, it, like the physical component is you have to like, actually eat correctly. And so at treatment, you would be provided like meals and snacks. And there were all sorts of like crazy rules around this, because they were like, it's not just like that you don't eat enough. Or, or for some people there, it was like you're eating, you know, your eating patterns are chaotic, whatever it is. But like, they want you to eat proper meals, but they also want you to eat them normally. Whereas like someone with an eating disorder usually has a lot of behaviors around the way that they eat. So they're trying to correct all those as well. So there were limits on like the amount of salt and pepper you could use. There were limits on like how much you could cut your food. There were limit. Actually, you couldn't even have a knife. It wasn't allowed. You you couldn't cut your food. Like there were limits on the amount of time. There were limits on the amount of water you could drink. Like all condiments were always limited. There were also like certain topics you couldn't talk about. It was crazy. Like it's honest, you couldn't stand up from the table. There were so many things. Like it was actually insane. Like the amount of things they tried to control with the eating but yeah so it was crazy experience like before you even started you had to do like deep breathing and then afterwards you had to discuss so it was a whole like 
it was a whole just event every single meal. Yeah. And then obviously the rule is like, you're supposed to finish everything on your plate. Everyone's given like a different serving depending on what their meal plan is. And I was training during the time too, like for the Olympic trials in 2021. And so I, I like had a pretty high training volume. So my food was always the most of anyone there. (laughs) And I would be like, why do you have so much? And I was like, I know. (laughs) I, was, I mean, that was also like a good reminder that you need a lot more food when you're training. But yeah. So anyways, that was like the physical component of it. And then the mental component, like you would basically the rest of the day, you just go to different forms of therapy. So there would be like cognitive behavioral and then action based. And then you'd have like your individual therapist and then you'd have like your dietitian and And then there was some random weird stuff that I personally don't know if it's beneficial, but there was like music therapy and art therapy and uh, yeah, basically all of therapy. What happens during art therapy? They're like, draw how you're feeling today. And then you draw it and they're like, describe this drawing to me. And I'm sure some people found it like useful, but I was like, I can't draw. And this just frustrates me. Yeah. And then the emotional component was like, you would have groups. So everyone, there were multiple therapists, but like everyone that went to one therapist, you'd have like a group therapy every couple days where you all would talk about what you were going through and discuss it. And then there were also different groups for like sub genres of eating disorders. So there would be ones that were like, you know, binge restrict. There would be ones that were like also coupled with addiction and trauma and then sports. And so I was in the sports group and we would all discuss it together and then have like different topics that we kind of targeted every time. So yeah, it was a lot. It was 10 hours a day, except on Sundays, we got like a half day, which was only like seven hours. With a lot of trauma, then the subsequent treatment, people can go through life, but then there's a lot of flare-ups that they then have to navigate. Is it something now that you look back in the rearview mirror, or do you still have flare-ups from time to time that you really need to manage? Um, I feel like I look at treatment in the rearview mirror. I don't think I'll ever have to go to treatment again, like knock on wood. I'm pretty well-managed. I wouldn't say that I'm fully recovered. Like, I still... Like, my boyfriend is completely just an intuitive eater. He's never had any problems. And, like, watching him eat, it's, like, almost seen like a mythical creature. Like, I can't really <laughs> understand that exists. Like, how can you live in this world and, like, not think about this at all? But it's great. And I want to get to that point where that's me. But I'm not there yet. I, I don't think I have an eating disorder anymore. I just think that I'm not, like, a completely normal eater. And it's just going to take a long time for me to get rid of like all the little behaviors and patterns that I had at one point. Like I said, in meal times, you know, there were there were like forty five different rules. So I think I'm pretty well past about thirty five of them. But you know, we got like ten. <laughs> Is it true that as a result of that, and then your subsequent honesty on social media, that some brands sort of strayed away because they just couldn't deal with it? So from the Brooks side of things, they basically, I I was actually the one that broached the subject of like, I don't know if I can keep running for you right now with the current structure, because 
all that happens is that I keep getting like these pretty severe stress fractures and like, it's not good for either of us. And I I was kind of hoping that we could like create a different plan where I could have like a slower comeback. But then they were kind of like, well, you're a liability because we don't want you to like sue us for making you get injured or something. You know, I don't know that they didn't say that they said that they thought that I was a liability. And then I think that means like they were afraid I would sue them at one point. And so then I left the team and during the next year I was kind of talking to some different sponsors and a lot of them were just concerned with like the eating disorder and um, how that would impact me moving forward and all of that. And I just felt like I was kind of being punished for having been open about it. Not that like I'm saying that those sponsorships would have worked out otherwise like we can never know what the other scenario would have looked like but it was a concern and it just felt kind of dumb to me because I think where I'm at my relationship with food is probably better than like 90% of runners because eating disorders and disordered eating are so common that probably I mean I won't I won't say that everyone that's a professional runner has issues, but I think that I probably have less than a lot. And so, yeah, I was just like, well, you do realize probably a lot of the people you're already sponsoring do have these problems. They're just not talking about it and they're not trying to fix it. And me talking about it and trying to fix it is somehow making me more of a risk. So yeah, I don't know. That was kind of weird, but ultimately at the end of the day for the best, because that you know red flags like that's not a brand that I want to affiliate myself with anyways off the back of that then you signed with normal which on paper looked great but it's also quite strange because they're sort of exclusively trail but then you're (laughs) obviously harnessing the two how did that conversation sort of come about yeah they contacted me on Instagram DMs (laughs) so (laughs) I was I was like is this a scam this seems too good (laughs) Um, but yeah, and then that was, it was, it was cool. It's a really awesome brand. And like you said, they're only in trails and they don't plan to branch into road racing at all, but they allow me that freedom, uh, to race on the roads and the track, as long as I'm also representing them on the trails. So honestly, so far it's been a really good fit. I'm able to stay where I'm at and have my own training style, my own coach and, my own lifestyle and everything and then still represent them and be involved in the brand so it's been great it's a really exciting brand but to someone who's never heard of them or come across them what what makes them so unique well normal it's spelled with two n's and it stands for no normal so basically they're trying to establish a new normal for the way that trail and outdoor gear is designed and created and distributed and recycled they're trying to make it an eco-friendly industry whereas right chronically outdoor trail running here is like very not eco-friendly um and most of the people in the space of that sport like want it to be um but so killian journey and camper are the co-founders and Killian is this incredible trail runner, mountaineer, like just any anything endurance athlete, like anything you think of, he'd probably just be world class at. So 
he he's also super super um passionate about sustainability and so he founded this brand to kind of change the the way that the industry works and yeah so far it's it's he's done a really good job they just they're in testing stages of this new shoe called the kibosh which is theoretically going to be basically a long-term shoe you can get the upper replaced you can get the the traction replaced you can put in a new insole whenever it wears out so it's supposed to be a shoe that you know isn't limited by one of its components for how long it lasts so yeah and they're really trying to change the game and super young brand but it's already getting a lot of traction so i'm excited to see where it goes and obviously you've spent some time with Killian and Emily Fosberg as well. What what was that like last summer when you were all together? It was really fun. I think that probably the surprising thing to most people is that Killian, a completely normal person, he's a dad and obviously he's also a professional athlete, but he isn't weird. He's not cocky. He's not arrogant. He doesn't expect different treatment. He's just a very down-to-earth person. It was fun to spend time with him and get to know him and and Emily too. They balance like taking care of their kids and training really well. And yeah, I mean, he does a lot, a lot of stuff to be the best in the world. Don't get me wrong. He's doing hypoxia training. He's doing hyperthermia training. He's doing his like long efforts. What's hyperthermia um, training? Uh, just saunaing basically. Yeah. So he does a lot, but he doesn't make it seem like he's above anyone or better than anyone. He wasn't aloof or anything like that. So that was, yeah, it was cool. He's just a normal guy. I mean, he's not normal at all, but. What was it like running in Europe and the Alps as opposed to America? Were there any like real differences? It was really, really beautiful, really cool. I'm super, super thankful that I got that experience and now if I do a race in the French Alps or that area, I'll kind of know what to expect. I think that the trails there are definitely, well, first off, very well marked, super easy to like find your way around, which was great because I got lost constantly, but then I would just follow the signs back and it was fine. But yeah, they're definitely pretty steep and then a little bit more technical than the U.S. in general. I mean, they were kind of, a lot of them were the kind of grade where it was unknown whether it was more efficient to hike or to run. I was like, <laughs> I don't really run the entire time up this, but <laughs> runnable. But so it was all kind of that grade around like 20, 25% where you're kind of like, what do I do? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was cool. I I do feel like Europeans are very proud of their trails. And they're like, our trails are much better. They're much more technical. They're much harder. And I agree to a certain extent. I do think the trails in Europe are harder than in the U.S. But the U.S. also has some really nice trails. I don't think that the European trails are necessarily all steeper. I just think they are a little bit more technical. Like maybe there's a little more rocks or roots. Like they're less manicured than the ones in the U.S., but they're not more manicured than the ones in Alaska. So when Francesca was on, he was just saying in Europe, he like if he was to go out running, he's in Italy, 
and the Italian Alps. And there's just like a whole spider web of trails, just which you could go any which way all the time. But he said in the States that like there's lots of really long trails, like the John Muir Trail, he was saying, that it goes across like two roads or something. And it's like 300 miles. Whereas you go yeah. like 300 meters in Europe and you're like into the next town. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a big difference too. I feel like in the US, there's a lot of trails, but they don't all connect. Whereas in Europe, I feel like they're all connected. When you're racing, what sort of mental tactics do you deploy? Because everyone is different in what they do just to sort of get themselves through to the next aid station or the finish. And one of my one of my favorites was with I interviewed a guy called John Kelly, who's like a Barclay marathon winner. And he was doing this spine race, which is a 268 mile race across the UK. And I was like, you know, you're 60 hours in. What on earth do you think about to try and get yourself through the last 25 hours? And he just thought, well, people zoom in, but I zoom out. So I just think, hey, I've got 24 hours until I'm finished. That's only a day. I've only got a day left. I've been training for this for years and I've only got a day left. Think about that every now and again. I just laugh out loud at like John Kelly and his, <laughs> his mental tactics. What personal ones do you use? I, during races, I think my biggest tactic, and this probably... I mean, it works very well for pretty much any any race, like track, road, trail. Whenever I get to the point where I'm like really, really hurting, I'm just like, okay, you you can quit, but we got to get to the next, you, you got to finish this lap first, or like you got to go to the next aid station, or you got to get to the next mile marker, like whatever it is. And I'm like, once you're there, then you can quit. But then I get there and I'm like, okay, well, I'll just do like one more lap. And then, you know, <laughs> I just continue process until the race is eventually over <laughs> that's that's one of my tactics which i use very often <laughs> but then another one is basically being like okay this this really hurts right now but it'll it'll hurt for the duration of the race whereas if you give up that will hurt for weeks <laughs> like you won't be able to talk about it so like this pain might seem bad but trust me it's nothing also, this one I use more in training, like when I'm really bored, when I'm cross training, or like I'm on the bike for three hours or whatever it might be. And I'm just like, God, get me out of here. Anything else? I'll just be like, well, you know, like, I'm just I'm on the bike for three hours. But like, whatever this this three hours was going to pass anyways, like the time will pass anyways. So I'm just going to sit on the bike for the, the three hours. And then I'm just gonna, it's just the time is just gonna pass, you know, and I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, I'm just like, I'm going to live through this three hours anyways. So like <laughs> of my life on the bike and that's just going to be what it is. Just, and then I'm going to pass. It's never going to stop. It's just going to pass. So I don't know. I've never heard anyone take an existential approach to their training like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. For some reason it helps me. Cause I'm just like, well, yeah, we're here. And I'm just, I kind of, myself is like stationary and the time like moving past me and i'm like okay you must have some war stories from either when you were like in a race or even training especially in alaska as well just like it's so remote and wild do you come across any wildlife up there one time my sister and i were on a trail run and we had stopped to take a picture at this bridge and we heard this like low growl so then we both just took off sprinting back the other way for like a straight mile. We just booked it. And to this day, we don't know what it was or if it was a bear or what. We thought it was a bear. So we didn't wait around to find out. And we just <laughs> away. 
Um, that was really scary, though. There was a lot of adrenaline. <laughs> um, and then I've seen, like, so many moose, but they're pretty harmless. One time I was cross-country skiing, and I was tucked going down a hill, and I just turned a corner, and there was a moose, like, literally right here, and I was just like, but yeah, I mean, I haven't had like any super frightening wildlife encounters, luckily. My sister saw a bear another time where she actually like saw the bear, but I wasn't there. Lately, there's been a coyote in my local park. I see it every once in a while. It just like trots past. I think it's looking for a home, honestly. <laughs> that would make great Instagram content, rehome the coyote. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he'll get along with my miniature dachshund super well. <laughs> Leah Wilcox, who's a ultra cyclist, she, she was doing the Tour Divide, and it was like three in the morning, and she was like day three, and she's filming, and she can just see like two eyes, and then she's like, "Oh, it's a mountain lion," and she's like so calm about it. She's like, "Oh, look, a mountain lion," and then just like keeps riding as this mountain <laughs> lion like walking, like half stalking beside her. She, she's like so tired; she doesn't care. And yeah. it's just America, so people are used to it. But honestly, if anything like happened in Europe, it would just be all over the news. It's crazy. <laughs> She's like, well, I've been going three days. Just if you're going to attack, you attack. It's... <laughs> <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those following you, what can they expect from you in the coming year? I was just talking about this yesterday with my coach. We're making a racing schedule. But so basically, we have January until April planned at this point. So the plan is I'm going to do a 10K cross-country race in January, which is the U.S. Championship. So it should be a really competitive race. And then in February, I'm doing a 28K trail race that's in California, I forgot what it's called, but it's there. Um, it's near San Francisco. <laughs> and then it, at the beginning of April, I'm racing a road 5K, probably. This is, is, you know, not set in stone, but, like, that's what we think. Road 5K. And then about a week later, I'm going to do a 25K trail race in Japan. Cool. Are you ever tempted by, like, the super long-distance ultra stuff? Because it's kind of all the rage at the moment. And Francesco made a really good point because he was saying that people should aim to race the shorter distance stuff rather than just complete a longer distance one because sport's all about performance, he was saying. And I thought, you know, that's so interesting because I'd never heard anyone to say that because everyone always just thinks the longer, the more epic. That's my thing. I think that I still really struggle like with a 25K distance to know how to pace that. And I feel like I... Like, I haven't finished any race being like, oh, I, I should have gone a lot harder. Like, I've always gone hard enough. But I think it's just such a difficult distance to for me right now to, like, to actually be, like, in race mode the whole time and to know, like, how much I should be hurting at different points. Because when I'm in a track 5K, I know, like, okay, I'm hurting this much at 2K. Like, am I good? Should I, like, back it off a tiny bit? Like, should I push forward? I will know because I've raced it enough. Whereas in a 25, 28K trail race, also it can be so different depending on what the elevation profile of the race is. But like, I don't have enough experience to know exactly like what point of doneness I should be, you know, like should I be medium rare, rare? Like, I don't know. 
So it's really hard. But I agree with him. Like, you're definitely racing the whole, like, shorter trail race. Whereas a longer trail race, like an ultra, like, 100 mile or, or some of those super long ones, like, 250 miles, whatever. It's like, are you racing that? I feel like at that point, you're you're doing your own individual thing. Like, you're almost not competing with other people because you have to be zoned in on, like, what you can actually do or else you're not going to be able to finish. Do you know what I mean? And so I think it's, like, definitely a different dynamic. And it it kind of – the longer the race is, I feel like the further it veers towards you're doing your own race versus racing other people. And then the shorter it gets, the more it's, like – okay, hone in on, like, the competitive instincts you have and try to, like, draw a little bit of extra motivation from that and be able to push yourself a bit further. Yeah, trail racing is just so, so interesting because there's a lot of unknown elements and just different intricacies that don't happen in the more more controlled environments on the road or track. And so, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Also, people think that a 25K is a short race. Like, that is ridiculous to me, especially because it's on trails. It can take, like, three hours. It's not short. It's not short. That, they, like, people will say that is short, but, oh, gosh. The ultra runners always being like, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good short little race. And I'm, I'm just like, it's not, <laughs> you can't say that, you know, it's, if it takes more than two hours, if you are taking a gel during the race, it's not short. That is my new criteria. How do you balance then now? Like obviously you're big on social media, you've got a big following and you're putting out a lot of content. How do you balance that between enjoying the content in which you're putting out, but also feeling like you know, you're a slave to the content? How do you balance social media and training? I definitely I treat social media as a job and I treat running as a passion. So running is like what I want to do, what I'm excited, excited to do and like really, really look forward to. It's what I'm the most passionate about. And then social media is like, it's a job that I enjoy. Don't get me wrong. It's not like some sort of chore, but it's definitely something where I'm like, okay, I'm on a schedule and like, this is the deadline, whatever. And I need to get it done. And I mean, part of that's driven by like brand deadlines that I have, commitments towards but a lot of it's personal in that I I just want to do the best I can with my social media and I I enjoy it and so I'm like I want to you know be on a consistent schedule and make sure that it can be successful and so yeah that's kind of the way I think of it that sometimes social media like every once in a while it is a little bit of a chore but most of the time I'm just I'm, I'm planning ahead and I have like the schedule that I'm going to complete and I'm able to like come up with ideas and stuff and I enjoy like the idea side of things and for Instagram and then for YouTube I I usually focus it around my training so as long as training's going well YouTube's pretty easy it's when like I get injured or something that it gets a little bit harder but yeah, I, I like that side of it because YouTube is literally like, I usually just show basically my life and and that somehow people want to watch that. So yeah, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad they find it entertaining because sometimes in videos, I'm like, it is insane. Like my life is so boring. <laughs> I can like, train and walk my dog. But like, you know, if people enjoy it, if people watch it, like I'm very happy for that. And like, I love sharing that with them 
Do you think social media is becoming a more important or even required function of athletes going forward? Because obviously, you'd say you're probably on the forefront that you've had quite a big following for quite a while. So that's a really good asset for you to say go to brands with. But do you think now brands are thinking, well, all athletes of a certain level need to have X amount on social media? Yeah, I think that it, that social media is going to become more and more important. I mean, as a professional athlete, those salaries are coming out of the marketing budget. So as much as professional athletes want to push against it and say that they're not influencers, I mean, they technically are. Like, their job is to influence people to buy the brand products. There's, like, what what is your other purpose? Like, you're wearing their stuff to get people to buy it. So, like... I mean, I wouldn't say that they're just influencers because obviously they have a certain job of like running or whatever sport they're in, but the the end goal is to influence. And so if athletes want to grow their social media, then that will be advantageous towards the brand that they're representing and although a lot of contracts uh, a lot of contracts currently don't have that as a as part of the contract, it's not required. I think that more and more it will be important. Like that will be something that they consider when signing athletes. And, um, I mean, I think for me, like that's something that I think about a lot is like, am I an influencer? Am I a professional runner? I don't know. I think I'm both because I mean, what I said before, all professional athletes are influencers, but for me, some of my contracts are social media based and some of them are athletically based. And I honestly kind of think that that's a nice balance to have. I, I think that the main companies that are athletically based are like those big shoe or apparel brands. They're the ones that are like, wear our stuff in your races and then we'll pay you. And that's what most athletes have. But I think that's kind of limiting yourself because all these other companies, like some that I work with, like Transparent Labs or Element or Koros Watches, like they want you to post on social media and they don't have athletic appearance requirements. They don't have race requirements, but that's like extra ways that an athlete can bring revenue in. And running isn't the most lucrative sport. I think that in general, if athletes are willing to grow their social media, it'll be more lucrative for them. They'll have more brand opportunities. And I think that the negative connotation around influencer is kind of weird because it's basically just it's basically just saying that you have influence, which is the goal of like an a professional athlete from a brand perspective. From a professional athlete's perspective, the goal is just performance. And I agree, like, that needs to stay the main focus. And if my social media starts taking away from my training, then it's not advantageous to me anymore. And I would rethink that. But also, you only train so many hours in the day, and it's not really difficult to take the time to post every once in a while and share that with people. So, yeah, I personally, I think that the line is going to get more and more blurred, but I think that's advantageous for the athletes. It basically just means that we'll have more opportunity for revenue from the sport, which is good because professional runners sometimes are like living below the poverty line. Like the contracts in professional running are not that big. And also 
there there are not nearly as many available as in other sports like basketball or football or or tennis or something like that where you could be the 150th best in the world and still be making hundreds of thousands a year like that's not the case for runners so i think you got to make it work any way you can and social media provides another opportunity and then speaking of social media and also youtube where could people find you if they want to have and listen to this episode yeah, so on Instagram, I'm Allie underscore Ostrander. And then on YouTube, it's just Allie Ostrander. I also post on TikTok, but that's Allie underscore underscore Ostrander because I had another TikTok, but it got banned. So, um, how did you get banned? We, we don't need to talk about it. But. <laughs> I had never I had never posted a public TikTok and it got banned. I was like, what in the world? Like I have literally not posted on here because I used it just to like edit videos on and then it got banned. So, yeah, anyways, my other TikTok is Allie underscore underscore Ostrander um, and it is not banned and I post on there. But I like it's kind of like my little pet project. because I'm like, I want to see if I can grow a following from zero. So, yeah, just broke a thousand followers the other day. So pretty exciting. <laughs> well Ali thank you so much for coming on to the show I really appreciate the honesty in which you display online and I'm really excited to see what happens next in your athletic career yeah thank you I'm glad we could finally make this happen <laughs> <laughs>